Hey, welcome back for part three of my series on giant monsters or kaiju. Last time I wrapped up Godzilla's Showa period, which is a series of films that were released during the reign of Emperor Showa Hirohito in Japan, who was in power from 1926 until his death in 1989. These uh, Godzilla films from that period started with Gojira in 1954 and ended in 1975 with Terror of Mechagodzilla. And it wasn't for another decade before he returned to the silver screen. But before we dig into more of Godzilla's filmography, I'm going to talk about some other notable giant monsters that arrived around this time and how they all lead to where we are today. Lots to cover today in this final chapter of our giant monsters. So let's get started. Now, some of these movies might be a bit questionable as far as whether or not they are actually kaiju, but they are larger-than-usual creatures, so if you'd like, we can give them an honorable mention kaiju status. I know you can't see my fingers, but I am giving air quotes around honorable mention. Of course, Jaws was released in the United States in 1975, and see how that lines up perfectly with the end of Godzilla's Showa period? Uh, arguably, he's just nothing more than a big old fish, and not really at the giant kaiju status, although he is very notable in the pantheon of monster movies, and I recognize him as such. Steven Spielberg created a perfect movie here, in my opinion, which is ironic considering the hell he went through to make it. More on Jaws in a couple episodes, but just know that it reinvigorated the monster films as a whole, and it inspired countless copycats. A couple other standouts from around this time would be Food of the Gods, which is based on an H.G. Wells story. H.G. Wells, of course, was one of the founding fathers of modern sci-fi horror-type stories, and he created some famous works like The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds, which feature giant robot war machines piloted by Martians. So, worth a mention, I think. Food of the Gods is essentially if all of the vermin and creepy crawly creatures like rats and stuff of the Earth were mutated to grow to enormous sizes and start chowing down on people. I mean, that, that, that's basically the movie. It's an intense cult classic. I recommend it. Another film of the same vein would be Night of the Lepus. Or if you're bad like me, you say Night of the Lupus, which arguably sounds like a worse time. Night of the Lepus is essentially food of the gods, but with giant rabbits. Lepus, of course, being Latin or something or other for rabbits. Another cheesy schlockfest, but Man, is it so dang rewatchable. The late 1960s through the 1980s continued the evolution of the monster movie we saw explode in the 1950s. Of course, for every giant monster, there were a dozen smaller, more people-sized creatures. Now, I loved Creature from the Black Lagoon, Forbidden Planet, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, The Blob, just so many more of these classic monster movies from the 50s and 60s, but they just don't fall under the category of kaiju or what you could consider a giant monster. I could talk all day long about Alien, which came out in 1979, and its sequel, its first sequel, Aliens, in 1986. 
Um, but as far as giant goes, the only thing that comes close in those movies is the alien queen from Aliens, and it just isn't quite the same as what we would call a giant monster or a kaiju. Don't worry, though. I'm going to do a deep dive on the entire Alien franchise soon enough. I did leave out one very important kaiju in my last episode. This was not for lack of knowledge or forgetfulness. I just had way too many Godzilla movies to cover. It's not the film War of the Gargantuas, but that certainly should have been mentioned. It's also not the Mysterions or the X from Outer Space, Gappa the Trifibian Monster, or Yongari Monster of the Deep, but add all of those to your honorable mentions list if you can't get enough kaiju. It's not even Gorath, Dogora, or the Space Amoeba. The monster in question was from Japan, but not Toho Studios. Daiei Films created this next beast, and uh, it was later produced by Karukawa Daiei Films. I'm, I'm guessing that's just an evolution of Daiei Studios. Anyway, this monster in question... Well, he's a giant radioactive, fire-breathing turtle that can fly once he hides in his shell and starts spinning around like a maniac. His name? Gamera. The original film, Gamera the Giant Monster, was released in 1965 in black and white. It is very much along the same lines of the original Gojira, but a little bit more kid-friendly. In fact, Gamera's whole series, he's pretty much known for being more family and kid-friendly than even his lizard counterpart. Aside from his very first film, he actually goes out of his way to protect human children, something Godzilla was not too po not too bothered to do. Um, all of this applies to the Showa-era sequels of, for Gamera. The films of our next era, however, are some of the greatest and darkest kaiju films of all time. But for his initial run, Gamera did okay. His final film from the Showa era was released in 1980 after a nine-year hiatus between sequels, which, um, you know, he was pretty long time. He had several sequels, but nowhere near as many as Godzilla did. And uh, after that 1980 film, it would be another 15 years before Gamma would return, but boy, was it worth it. More on the big turtle guy in a minute. Daiei Films did create another pretty notable kaiju during this period with a trilogy of films all shot at the same time. If that sounds familiar, that's something Peter Jackson would do decades later with his Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, this trilogy from Daiei featured a kaiju called Daimajin. He's this giant, great demon god guy who, uh, who helps his villagers from pesky warlords from time to time. It's absolutely worth watching if you're a fan of the genre. He's more of a big stone kind of giant guy. Think, think uh, Talos from... Jason and the Argonauts, although he was made of metal, but the same kind of thing, a giant statue god guy coming to life. So monsters big and small were terrorizing theaters around the globe during the 1970s and the 1980s. King Kong even returned in his first remake in 76, uh, which I mentioned in part one. It's a fine film, but to me it isn't as awe-inspiring as the 1933 original King Kong. The acting might be a bit better in parts of the remake. Uh, the remake is in color, which is nice. And a lot of the filmmaking technology had improved just by nature of being, you know, 43 years later. But there's something magical on, in Willis O'Brien's effects work in that original film that is just absent from the suitmation of the 76. I mean, it's still a great performance, but I don't know. I, 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 guess, I guess it's all up to personal taste. And I love some classic stop-motion action. Again, as I mentioned, this movie did have a sequel 
1986 called King Kong Lives, but it was a pretty pretty big flop. It was mostly a failure, likely due to the decade disconnect between the films and, in my opinion, what could be seen as an attempted cash grab to piggyback on Godzilla's return to cinemas in 1984 or 1985 internationally. So yes, we're back to Godzilla again. He is the king of the monsters after all. And uh, technically, this was released while Emperor Showa Hirohito was still alive, but it's considered the dawn of the Heisei era, which is the next era in Japan. Uh, This film is called The Return of Godzilla, or Godzilla 1985, if you were international. Now, I touched briefly on Godzilla 1985 in Part 2, but essentially it was a return to the more villainous Godzilla we saw in those first few original films. Indeed, this film was a direct sequel to Gojira, completely ignoring all the others in between. Again, this was the dawn of the Heisei era um, in Japan, even though it would be a few years before Emperor Showa would pass away. Um, If you haven't watched Gojira since last week, though, I am going to mention some pretty spoilery things about the original film um, as in how it relates to Godzilla 1985. At the end of Gojira, there is a warning stated that basically was meant to be a call to action for the world to stop using nuclear weapons and polluting our planet. We see how well that worked out. But this warning is integral to this notion of a connected sequel three decades later. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically that if we don't stop what we're doing with this pollution and nuclear activity, um, the possibility of another Godzilla to appear is pretty high. And uh, when I say another Godzilla, you know that's because Godzilla died in the original Gojira film. Crazy to think about, I know, but it happened. They killed off Godzilla. We see how that message applies to the return of Godzilla, this new Godzilla, and how it echoes the past. It's pretty cool stuff. As I mentioned in part two, Raymond Burr reprises his role from King of the Monsters, the American re-edit of Gojira, in Godzilla 1985, which is, oddly enough, the American re-edit of The Return of Godzilla. This is pretty high on my list, although it is hard to get your hands on a copy nowadays. Um... There's a lot of fan edits out there online, uh, if you can get a hand on one of those, but it's it's still not either true cut of the film. They take best elements of each and combine them into different versions. I, uh, I do have one called the Red Menace edit, and it's pretty solid, I think. Um, I do still have my American re-edit VHS, and I do have the Blu-ray remastered version of the original Japanese cut of the film, which uh, wasn't available in the States until very recently, a couple years ago. You might still be able to find that online. Both versions, both original versions of the film, the American re-edit and the the original theatrical, are are pretty rad. There's flying machines, there's lasers, a new intense look and sound to Godzilla, and a flock of seagulls make for an interesting and somber entry. And to be clear, the flock of seagulls in this movie are not the band of flock of seagulls, but actual birds. Although if Godzilla wanted to be a roadie, then more power to him, I guess. Just not sure how he's going to fit in the van or on the bus. The next film was released a few years later in 1989. It was called Godzilla vs. Biollante, and wow, 
Is this a good one? It's a direct sequel to 1985, and Biollante has sort of an interesting plot for a kaiju film. During Godzilla's attacks in 1984, a scientist's life is turned upside down by the death of his daughter, and of course he blames Godzilla for all of this. It's, I mean, it's easy to do so. He's this big giant lizard stomping around. A few years later now, this scientist, in a mad attempt to preserve something other than memories, I guess, combines some of Godzilla's DNA that was recovered from that previous attack. Uh, he combines that with the DNA from a rose plant, and of course he combines it with the DNA of his dead daughter. The resulting creation is a rapidly growing, rapidly mutating entity known as Biollante. Add in a young woman with a psychic connection to Godzilla, and you have one of the strangest, most tragic, and arguably one of the best Godzilla movies ever made. I think what I like about these Heisei movies, it's, it's, it's kind of like in the early Showa movies, before they got really crazy, there's a sense of continuity across all the movies. It's not, you know, maybe it's not like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we see now, where every little thing connects to everything else, but... There is a loose sense that everything goes together. For instance, that psychic girl I mentioned, well, she's in the remainder of the Heisei Godzilla movies. There are other recurring human characters, too, and even some recurring monsters you'll recognize from the previous Showa era of films. The Heisei period was released when I was a kid, so I guess maybe that's why I have a soft spot for them, even though at the time I think I was still mostly watching the original Showa movies because they're a lot of fun. But... Um, the, the allure of these 80s and 90s films was, was, was pretty cool, I think. One of the biggest differences between the Showa and the Heisei films, aside from the tone, is the fighting style. Sure, we still have performers in, in big giant rubber monster suits beating each other up, but there's actually less close-quarter combat in these Heisei films and a lot more laser beam battles. Essentially, it's more of a sci-fi western shootout, than it is a WWE SmackDown. Instead of Godzilla dropkicks, we get Laser Wars. All it's missing now is Laser Cats. Taste is subjective, of course, but I enjoy both. The next film would see the return of one of Godzilla's arch-rivals, King Ghidorah. Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah was released in 1991 and honestly maintains the solid quality of these Heisei Godzilla films, now the third of this new series. I think we can all agree that when Ghidorah is involved, there's usually something related to outer space or space aliens. But what if I told you, this time, they were essentially time-traveling aliens. Your mind is blown. I can tell. Brains all over the place, man. Clean up your mess. So essentially, it's another let's use Godzilla so we can control the world type of movie. Or in this case, the future world. Long story short, during all this crazy time travel, by the way, they're Westerner, American kind of alien time travel people. It's complicated. But during all this crazy time travel, Ghidorah is reborn as Mecha King Ghidorah, and Godzilla is supposedly killed. But he's not. Again, the whole plot's a mess. Check it out if you like time travel, or either of these monsters. One last quick note about Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. 
When it was initially released, the film became one of the most controversial Godzilla movies ever made. CNN ran a story basically stating that the film was anti-American. Even original Godzilla director Ishiro Honda criticized the film and its director, saying he had gone too far. The director, Kazuki Omori, defended the film and claims he was not trying to be anti-American, but showed the identity of the people of Japan. With high economic tensions between Japan and the United States at the time, it's easy to see why it came under such scrutiny. Up next, Mothra returns in Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth. This film was also called simply Godzilla vs. Mothra, internationally. Again, more of the same serious tone, lots of laser beam fight type things and such. Uh, there is a new monster added in this film called Batra. Essentially, he's a demon bat version of Mothra that probably flew straight out of hell to be in this motion picture. It's worth watching for Mothra fans, for sure. Following this movie's success, Toho continued to return to its familiar characters with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. As I touched on in Part 2, Mechagodzilla's arguably best material is probably in his first two films from the Showa era, but in this movie, he's new and improved, and he has to take on not just Godzilla, but Rodan as well. Mechagodzilla was created by the United Nations this time, instead of aliens, in order to stop Godzilla. And meanwhile, a large egg has been retrieved by scientists. Spoiler alert, it's baby Godzilla. And yeah, it has some fun sequences, and it was very successful at the box office. Oh, and if I remember correctly, Mechagodzilla is partly built from Mecha King Ghidorah's remains. See how everything is starting to tie together? Toho must have really liked the idea of the United Nations building giant robots to kill Godzilla. Because in the next movie, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, the United Nations have created something called Mogera, which is basically Mechagodzilla with a big old cone nose. And he's got some... he's got some wide hips! I'm sure you guessed from the title that there is, in fact, a space Godzilla. He's a really unique-designed creature. Uniquely-designed creature. Uh, he has these like, crystal things that keep popping up out of his shoulders, and he uses them popping up out of the landscape and stuff. Uh, he was born from some of Godzilla's DNA particles that ended up in space somehow. It sounds crazy, right? Well, watch this Heisei series. I'm not even sure I'm covering all the crazy. Baby Godzilla returns in this one, and of course, our human recurring uh, characters come back too. Okay, now the final Godzilla film from the Heisei era is called Godzilla vs. Destoroya, and it was released in 1995. Do you remember in Gojira how something called an oxygen destroyer was used to take on Godzilla in 1954? Well, if you don't, that's okay. It's a little bit more spoilers here from that film. But uh, Toho is going to recap all of that for you if you watch this movie. So in the 40-ish year gap and aftermath of that giant aquatic oxygen destroyer explosion, a new beast was born called Destoroya. And he emerges hell-bent on destroying Godzilla. Meanwhile, Godzilla is going nuclear. Literally. He's essentially a walking nuclear power plant about to explode. 
So that's fun. This is one of the more emotional Godzilla films, I think, and uh, it it really takes some truly creative risks. Will Godzilla defeat Destoroya, a monster much bigger and scarier than he is? Or will Godzilla be Destoroid, sending the now adolescent baby Godzilla home as an orphan? I will not tell you. You're going to have to watch this one because, in my opinion, it's one of the best of this era. Next, I'll fill you in on Gamera's Heisei Trilogy and what was happening in the United States during this time before wrapping up our kaiju talk with the Millennium Era, something called Shin Godzilla, and the American Monsterverse we're celebrating today. Stay tuned. I mentioned that I thought the Heisei Gamera movies were some of the greatest kaiju films of all time. It's true, they are. But why? First off, Gamera has had a makeover. Gone is the ultra-kid-friendly happy turtle we're left with this ancient, awe-inspiring force of nature. The villains that appear throughout the trilogy are called Gauss, and in the first film it's all about them. They originally appeared during Gamera's initial run of films, and to describe them, I guess they're, they're sort of like giant bat-bird pterodactyl things, and whew, these things are mean especially in these Heisei films. Okay, the stories intertwine as new monsters are also introduced. Yeah, there's Legion and Iris, and each one of these monsters have a more and more fascinating and creative narrative to accompany them. The cinematography is superb in all of these films. How the filmmakers use their illusions and forced perspective between the suitmation and the miniatures is astounding. For example... There are many instances of the crew putting the camera more in the environment than we're used to in these big giant soupmation monster movies. Like, um, there's a scene in one of the films where the camera is in the, the back window of a moving car, and it's looking through the back window up toward Gamera, who's stomping through this city, which of course is all miniature models, but because of the frame around the camera making it feel like you're in the car with combined with the movement of the of the car going in one direction and Gamera going in the other direction it just it really sells it there's tons of moments like this throughout all three movies they went above and beyond to add tension and put you right in the thick of the action something the Heisei Godzilla movies do admittedly struggle with the music too is excellent and really adds to the experience all three of these films Gamera Guardian of the Universe Gamera Advent or Attack of Legion, and Gamera 3, Revenge of Iris, take a kaiju property that had been made fun of for decades on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and craft something wholly original. Gamera finally comes into his own in these three movies of equal awesomeness. The trick here is they never relax Gamera into the same old monster tropes. He continues to change and evolve as do his stories. If you ever get a chance to watch these, please do. I highly recommend all three of them. Uh, I know for a while there was a, a Blu-ray trilogy set, which I own, for sale on Amazon. There's also the big giant Arrow collector sets. Um, keep your eyes out. It may or may not be streaming on Crackle every once in a while. But uh, highly recommend these. Meanwhile, back in the United States, giant monsters had fallen to the wayside during the 1980s. 
I mean, sure, there were a few good American giant monster movies at that time. Larry Cohen's Q, The Winged Serpent, comes to mind, as does Clash of the Titans, which was Ray Harryhausen's final film, and features a giant kraken. Release the kraken! There were also some not-so-good giant monster movies, like King Kong Lives in 1986, the sequel to the 76 King Kong remake that I keep talking about. A lot of the movies around this time, they were more about human monsters. I mean, George Romero's zombie sequels like Dawn of the Dead and all that were happening, and, and you have a lot of slasher movies around this time. There was a remake to The Blob and a remake of The Thing, but neither of those could be considered giant monsters or kaiju. But then something happened. Hollywood was ready to make a Godzilla movie. There were a few attempts that other podcasters have dived into pretty heavily, but I'm going to talk about the one that actually did happen. In 1998, there was a movie called Godzilla, and it starred Matthew Broderick. I remember when the advertisements came out for this movie. First, there was this teaser trailer that saw Godzilla's foot stomp down on a T-Rex skeleton at the Museum of Natural History. It was awesome. Great build-up in that trailer and even the, the main trailer had some really great build up with like weird like sewer water noise things going on and, and destruction and uh, there, there were these strange but memorable Taco Bell commercials with the talking chihuahua you know quiero Taco Bell he was there and he was hanging out with Godzilla and they, they were very popular commercials at the time the important thing about this movie though is after the first few attempts at a serious, semi-faithful adaptation of Godzilla couldn't come to fruition, director Roland Emmerich, hot off the success of Independence Day, was given the Herculean task of making a movie about a giant mutant lizard that rampages New York. So if you were to ask a Godzilla fan what the worst Godzilla movie is, they'll either say this movie, or they won't acknowledge it at all. Now, being a fan of all kaiju, I, I tend to enjoy this movie. Is it a copy of the Jurassic Park movies at the time? Uh, sure, there's some elements that are definitely similar, especially in the creature design, and it's probably no coincidence that Universal released The Lost World Jurassic Park at the same time. Drawing comparisons because, duh. Is it cheesy and fun in a typical late 90s, early 2000s sort of way? Absolutely. Is it a good Godzilla movie? Well, let me answer it this way. I think this movie would have done so much better had it not been marketed as a Godzilla movie. He's essentially a dinosaur that runs loose in the city. I mean, we see in the beginning that it was an iguana that got mutated. You know, and, and we'd seen dinosaurs running loose in the city before. In Dinosaurus, uh, you know, an 80s dinosaur movie, um, and even older, in the 50s, with the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And then again, we saw the T-Rex from Jurassic Park in the Lost World Jurassic Park that same summer. I don't think the film itself is that terrible. What makes this film so hated by Godzilla fans is the fact that they slapped Godzilla's name on it when they should have kept it original. And I think it would have done a lot better. I mean... Is it is it the greatest monster movie of all time? No. Matthew Broderick is pretty solid in this movie. Jean Reno, he's he's also pretty solid. 
Definitely not on the professional level of performance in this, but for a B-action movie? It's great. Everyone's hamming it up just fine in this. There's some plot holes in the script and some strange logic things, but for me, Roland Emmerich's portrayal of a military and government completely out of their element is actually a lot of fun. Also, director Roland Emmerich fires back at famous movie critic duo Siskel and Ebert in this film. Roger, Roger Ebert and you know, uh, Richard Siskel. After receiving some pretty harsh reviews from those wonderful critics, Emmerich made them a comical duo of the New York City mayor, Ebert, and his right hand, Siskel. Lots of buffoonery takes place during the movie, and uh, he even names the characters after the critics. Pretty great. Anyway, is it the best movie from these three episodes about kaiju? No. But I do find myself re-watching this one from time to time and enjoying myself, even if it is for mindless popcorn fun. And that's what it's all about, right? Well, when Godzilla 1998 was released in the States, Japan was not happy. More on that shortly. But basically they figured they needed to release a new Godzilla movie of their own, and fast, in case any of the planned American sequels actually happened. They didn't, which makes the sequel tease at the end just sort of sad. Oh, what could have been. Fun fact, what could have been actually did happen, but in animated form. Roland Emmerich produced an animated series that more or less continued the series how he wanted to. In many ways, it's actually more fun than the first movie, and to me, it is just as fun, if not more fun, than the classic Hanna-Barbera-Toho joint animated series from decades prior. Okay, let's get back to Toho. Their next release was called Godzilla 2000. Again, trying to piggyback off that wild Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie. Uh, this new Godzilla 2000 featured a brand new design to the King of the Monsters, and this marked the beginning of the millennium era of films, uh, now that the Heisei and Showa eras were done. Godzilla 2000 is, is, is pretty good. It's definitely a little bit more straightforward Godzilla movie, featuring a new monster called Orga, that just wants to swallow Godzilla whole. Kind of, kind of crazy. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of lizard in one bite. You know, take it easy. This was followed by a movie called Godzilla vs. Megagurus. Megagurus. Me Megagurus. That's a mouthful. And it featured a black hole technology gun thing. Uh, there were mutant versions of these worms that you haven't seen since the original Rodan film in the 1950s. So, th this movie's got some deep connections, if you're looking for that. I remember liking this film when it came out, but honestly, it's been a minute, and everywhere I look, people are bashing it. Maybe I'm missing something, but the thought of Godzilla taking on this army of mutant black hole dragonfly things that end up having a giant version, it's kind of interesting. So the next, the next film is, is sort of a one-off Godzilla movie with a super long title. It's called Godzilla Mothra and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All-Out Attack. Again, that's Godzilla Mothra and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All-Out Attack. Bet you can't guess who's in this one. We're gonna abbre I'm going to abbreviate the title because that's a mouthful. And uh, I'm going to call it GMK, because that's a lot easier. So the Millennium series overall was a pretty loose 
continuity. Unlike the Heisei movies, which more or less all tied together, these films just seem to do whatever they want. Megaguris did feature the same or a similar Godzilla design to Godzilla 2000, and that design would return for two more Millennium movies. But this film, GMK, features a new Godzilla that reminds me of a little bit of the mix of the 1985 Godzilla and the meaner Godzilla from Mothra vs. Godzilla back at the early Showa period. This is one of the few, if only times, King Ghidorah is, spoiler alert, not the villain. That's right, King Ghidorah, Mothra, and Baragon. Remember him from Part 2? Well, they all team up to stop Godzilla's reign of destruction. Of course, if you're Godzilla, you think you're the good guy. Sort of like in Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, when Anakin goes, From my point of view, the Jedi are evil! And Obi-Wan goes, Well, then you are lost! That's kind of how this goes. At least that's how I picture King Ghidorah and Godzilla duking it out. Definitely a solid movie with some interesting plot points. Uh, basically, the three giant monsters that rise up to fight Godzilla are fighting off the evil spirits inside of him. So, I mean, that's a thing. There's a documentary filmmaker who's trying to unravel all this throughout the film. But let's be honest, you're here for the monster fights and whoa, do they deliver. The Millennium series also starts using a bit more CGI to clean up the lines between suitmation and models, and this one is no exception. I give GMK two monster-sized thumbs up. The Millennium Godzilla design returns for the next two films, which actually do go together. The first one is called Godzilla Against Mechagodzilla, and it is followed by Godzilla Tokyo SOS. And for me, these are the two best of the Millennium series. Even though it features Mechagodzilla in the title, neither the first film or the sequel actually refer to our metal monster as Mechagodzilla. Instead, its name is Kiryu. K-I-R-Y-U. I think I'm saying that right. Kiryu or something. And it was built by the Japanese Defense Agency to stop Godzilla. The twist is that Kiryu is built around the remains of the original 1954 Godzilla. Freaky, right? So Kiryu and its female human pilot, who has a loathing for Godzilla and wants to see him dead for personal reasons, the two of them are the heroes of these two movies. So Mothra shows up in Tokyo SOS and warns the people of Japan that what they've done making Kiryu out of this skeleton is really messed up, and it's wrong, and they need to return Kiryu to the sea so that the soul of the original Godzilla can rest in peace. Kind of crazy and spiritual and wild. And honestly, I think the spiritual nature of these movies couldn't have happened without the spiritual kind of nature of GMK and that film's success. So the, the Millennium Godzilla is just still stomping around and wreaking havoc, so there's lots of battles between both of these films and all the monsters in them. To wrap up the Millennium series, Toho does a soft remake of Destroy All Monsters with Godzilla Final Wars. Celebrating 50 years in its release in 2004, Godzilla does what we all do at reunions and grumbles, stomps around, yells at, and gets in fights with just about everybody from his past, one person at a time. Of course, there are aliens involved. It wouldn't be a 
celebratory Godzilla movie without them. And, of course, there's some really fun and cheesy human characters. Not just from Japan, there's some wild American guys in there, too. Uh, the tech in this film is also a lot of fun. It's definitely futuristic, as the film leans heavy into the science fiction nature. Now, I mentioned a little while ago how Toho was super upset about the American Godzilla film that Roland Emmerich did in 1998. Well, they hated that movie so much, they secured the rights to that American Godzilla's likeness, named him Zilla, and included him in Godzilla's WWE Reunion Battle Royale nonsense. It's a very short fight, but it has to be seen to be believed. If you don't want to watch the movie, the clip is on YouTube. I'm pretty sure just about every single monster Godzilla has ever faced, that's including Gigan, and I think the Smog Monster might even be in here too, I'm not sure. Um, but just about everybody shows up, including a brand new monster called Monster X. Big surprise reveal of who that is at the end. This film is a fan favorite, and it's easy to see why. There's lots of kaiju action and a fun, cheesy, futuristic setting that just makes this one a blast to watch. It would be another ten years before Godzilla would return to the big screen in America's next attempt at creating a solid Godzilla movie. And in my opinion, they succeed. This new American Godzilla was released in 2014. It was directed by Gareth Edwards, who had only one film under his belt before that. He directed a little movie called Monsters, and it featured giant kaiju-like aliens in Central America. He did all of the VFX work from his living room, which is awesome, and undoubtedly is what impressed the right people at Legendary to get this job. Now, there were a few other giant monster movies that came out just before this, well, even a little bit before, just before. <laughs> uh, Matt Reeves released Cloverfield, which was a found footage giant alien monster movie produced by J.J. Abrams. That was one. Uh, there was a King Kong remake in 2005, which I briefly mentioned before. It was directed by Peter Jackson. Now, this Peter Jackson King Kong movie did a great job of honoring and expanding on the 1933 classic, but it received a mixed response from critics and audiences alike. Some high moments, though, are the expanded T-Rex attack. I mean, instead of just one T-Rex, like in the original, there are a bunch. There's a plethora of dinosaurs in this, more than just even in the original. And uh, there's a trench of ravenous insects. <laughs> that scene gives me the heebie-jeebies. If you can get your hands on the extended version of this film, there's even more monsters and, and cool little cutaway scenes. The film features a great cast, including Jack Black, Naomi Watts, Adrian Brody, and Andy Serkis as King Kong through motion capture technology. There were even some almost forgotten kaiju movies called uh, Raigu, the Deep Sea Monster, and the Monster X Strikes Back. These were both from Japan, and they were released recently on home video in America for the very first time but uh, they've, they've been out for over a decade. I also almost forgot to mention that in the 1980s, the leader of North Korea, not Kim Jong-un, but his, his father, essentially kidnapped a filmmaker from South Korea to make a giant kaiju movie for him. The film was called Pulgasari, 
and the story behind the making of that film is absolutely outrageous. But unfortunately, that story will have to wait for another episode. There is a, a book, actually, that coincides with that, so stay tuned for that episode later on. Now, kaiju films didn't really hit their stride in, in America again until a man from Mexico named Guillermo del Toro arrived to do this big, giant, monster craze movie and uh, started this whole monsterverse, actually, even, if, even though it's not connected. Um, one year before Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film, Guillermo del Toro released Pacific Rim, a love letter to properties like Godzilla, Ultraman, the Gundam anime series, and countless other kaiju properties. I absolutely love this movie. Why? Well, partly because there's some great kaiju versus giant robot mecha type fights. And partly because it's a cheesy action movie with a lot of heart. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it does have the moments that make it better than many of this genre. There's a sequel now and an animated Netflix series, but this is the one to watch, the Guillermo del Toro film. Okay, so Gareth Edwards' Godzilla introduced Godzilla back into American cinemas, and he also created new kaiju for the film. And they were simply called Muto, M-U-T-O, or Massive Unidentified Terrestrial Organisms. Mutos. These big bug-like kaiju are, are longtime enemies of Godzilla, as it turns out, and he's been around for actually a very long time here, quite possibly a millennia, along with all the other kaiju that show up later in this MonsterVerse series. In fact, even all those atomic tests that, you know, they did carry over into the, into the mythos here, they were not tests, and they did not create Godzilla. No, no, no. They were designed to destroy him. Now, this film does a pretty darn good job, I think, of keeping the mystery of Godzilla and just showing this awe-inspiring power of him. He's a force of nature in these movies. And this, these themes sort of continue into the next installment of the MonsterVerse called Kong Skull Island. This one takes place prior to Gareth Edwards' Godzilla and serves as a prequel in the MonsterVerse. Uh, right at the end of the Vietnam War, we have some guys from this agency called Monarch, which I didn't mention is pretty central and integral to Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Um, anyhow, this, this agency Monarch is seeking to find proof that giant monsters exist, and they're going to Skull Island first. Now, while they're there, they find a juvenile King Kong. He's not king yet, he's just Kong. And he's the last of his kind. He's less than happy when this group of humans arrives, dropping bombs everywhere, flying around in their helicopters, shooting things. Add in a vengeful Samuel L. Jackson, and we've got ourselves a movie. The cast is pretty stellar, with Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston, John Goodman, and John C. Riley joining a fantastic cast of supporting players in this unique and brand new take on King Kong. And what I mean by that is, pretty much every other remake or, or sequel to Kong borrowed a lot from the movies before. 
I will say King Kong Lives did try to do new things like open heart surgery on a giant gorilla, but I think the, the originality paid off more in this film. Of course, there are giant monsters other than Kong in the film. Uh, there's a giant octopus. There's this weird wildebeest deer thing. There's giant insects like a bamboo spider beast. And of course, the horrific skull crawlers. Now, these things have to be from someone's nightmares because, whew, they are nasty. The next MonsterVerse film is called Godzilla, King of the Monsters, much like the original Gojira's American re-edit. Now, this one features new human characters with a couple of the Monarch Agency people returning. And there's some convoluted global terraforming-type plot filled with anarchy, dysfunctional moms, and angry Europeans. But what is important about this movie, and far more memorable, are which monsters do actually show up. For the first time ever in an American Godzilla film, we have Godzilla alongside Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah, and their action sequences do not disappoint. There's also a subplot uh, building on the mythos of these kaiju, or, or titans as they're called in these films, and uh, that they've been around forever, like I said, but that there's ancient civilizations that worshipped them, which we saw a hint of at the end of Kong, well, even during, to some extent during Kong, and uh, that there may or may not be ties to a hollow earth going on. Now, there's a little tease for Godzilla vs. Kong at the end of this movie, so make sure you see that. In fact, there's also a tease for Godzilla King of the Monsters at the end of Kong Skull Island, too, which which is cool. Uh, so if you haven't seen those, make sure you watch that. Anyway, that's that's the MonsterVerse. We have you know the brand new Godzilla vs. Kong out in theaters now. Um, if you can go to the theater safely, I hear it's really great on the big screen. I watched it from HBO Max at home on my giant 70-inch screen. I'm going to probably watch it on my 100-something-inch projector screen next. But um, that's available till May 1st, so if you haven't watched it, either sign up for a trial of HBO Max or borrow your buddy's HBO Max or go ahead and keep HBO Max because they have all these new releases all year long. Or like I said, if you can safely go to the theater, then I hear it looks great on the big screen too. Um, but that that's the MonsterVerse as of right now. Before we share final thoughts on that, I'm going to jump right back real quick to... Toho and what's going on in Japan during the 2010s and 2020s. So Toho released an anime trilogy of Godzilla, which was, it was okay. Uh, if you're into anime, check it out, but casual fans might want to skip that one. More importantly, they released one more live-action Godzilla film in 2014, or I'm sorry, 2016, from the creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion, so you know this one is nuts. The movie is called Shin Godzilla, or Shin Godzilla, um, or Godzilla Resurgence internationally. It's certainly one of the most unique kaiju movies ever made, and uh, it, it takes a decidedly more horrific approach to Godzilla, completely redesigning and rethinking what he is capable of or capable of being, even. 
Godzilla constantly evolves in this intense and interesting film that works as an allegory for the tsunami horrors Japan had faced in recent years. Now, be sure to watch till the end, too, as, as there's just just killer reveal at the last frame. And I don't have a whole lot of time, but I will say cinematography in this is great. There's some great use of satire in the plot. There's even some dark humor between the human characters, some things you can laugh at. Um, it, it, it's, it's really well done. It's not going to be for everybody. If you're used to this, the, the Showa era, like, you know, WWE dropkick Godzilla, who's just happy-go-lucky with Jet Jaguar, this might not be your cup of tea, but it certainly is worth watching if you, if you want a darker, more creative Godzilla. Let's, let's leave it at that. Now, as you can see, the history of giant monsters in movies is, is expansive, and it's ever-changing. Uh, even genres like romance and comedy have used the kaiju tropes in films like Colossal and uh, Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Of course, both of these examples also feature plenty of drama, but they take the tropes found in these kaiju films and turn them on their head and take them in entirely new directions. I recommend both of those movies, by the way. That's Colossal with Anne Hathaway and Bong Joon-ho's The Host. There are currently no new plans for Legendary to continue its MonsterVerse after this Godzilla vs. Kong release. In fact, they recently did um, share a thank you video to fans everywhere who supported the series and made them a reality. We'll have to see where it goes from here. I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like them to see, an, uh, you know, I'd like to see them make at least one or two more. I think they were a lot of fun. And it, it helps kind of raise awareness of these kinds of movies to American audiences. Meanwhile, Toho is planning a few new Godzilla properties with an all-new anime arriving to Netflix this year. It's called Godzilla Singular Point, and it looks like another interesting reimagining of the Godzilla franchise. No matter what you love about movies, the giant monster movie genre is bound to satisfy you. And whether you, you want to sit down and watch... Uh, the actually great Rebirth of Mothra trilogy from the Heisei era, or the craptastic Lake Placid vs. Anaconda on the Sci-Fi Channel, there's giant monster movies everywhere now. I would even consider the Meg to be an honorable mention kaiju, because, I mean, he's a lot larger than Jaws. There's a sequel to that film on the way, but uh, don't tell anyone, but the books are much better. I'm always debating whether or not the worm things from Tremors could be considered kaiju. Some people would say yes, and a lot of other people would say no. Regardless, they're giant worms that terrorize Kevin Bacon and Reba McIntyre. What's not to love? In the end, just like every other movie we discuss, it's all up to you and what, what you like and what makes you happy. I will always watch any new monster movie that happens to come out, small or giant. Now, this weekend is the 93rd Academy Awards Ceremony. I am super behind on this year's nominees because pandemic, but I do plan on watching and then talking about all of these in the near future. In the meantime, my next little mini-series will focus on the topic of event movies. So, how they all started out as these big, giant, silent masterpieces, and then they morphed into great biblical epics and eventually evolved into blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars. And that road, of course, leads all the way to the comic book franchises 
we can't get enough of today. So be on the lookout for those very soon. Until next time, I'm Zachary Markley, and I'll leave you with one question. What will you watch this week? 